come along with us because 99th episode is going to dream country. This is another one of our Sandman episodes, so tune in, close your eyes, and nod off to sleep with us. Oh, shoot, it's already Sunday night. Oh, man. Crap. Every day feels like it's just like, oh, the vacation's almost over. And I'm like, wait, no, this is only two days in. I mean, now I've got two days left after today, but of a nine-day vacation still. Yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. But uh, anyways, it's good to talk to you, Sean, at Bad Deacon on Twitter. It is good to talk to you, Paul, at Who's Paul on Twitter. <sighs> Follow us there for pleasant conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did that seamlessly. It was real organic. That was a very seamless introduction of us and who we are, which is great. All That's those first-time been... listeners are going to be very pleased to find out been... that I am Sean and you are Paul. Been practicing it. I can tell. <laughs> In front of the mirror, hours on end. It really, it really shows. Yeah, I'm not actually on vacation. I lost my job because I spent so much time practicing that. My guess is this year we'll get one of those podcaster awards for best introduction for the introduction from this episode. That's about time. Yeah, I know. Recognized. We've been waiting for that Oscar of podcasting to come our <laughs> way. So speaking of Oscars, I've been reading this book by Neil Gaiman. Hey, me too. We are finally returning to our discussion of Sandman. It's been quite a while since last time we talked about, oh man, what was the last one we talked about? It was the... Oh man, I'm totally spaced on it now. What was the second trade? The serial convention one. A Doll's House. Yeah, Doll's House. Yes. Last time we talked, we talked about the Doll's House storyline from Sandman. And this time we're talking about some of the short stories that come after that doll's house and these are issues 17 18 19 and 20 which are calliope a dream of a, a thousand cats midsummer night's dream and facade these are also contained in the dream country trade paperback or in volume one of the absolute edition which i am reading or volume two of the deluxe edition which is what you're reading yeah so we are absolutely deluxified and what, so what's exciting to me at this point, too, is um, I have, I mentioned this before, but I've repeatedly started rereading the series, and I pretty much get through Doll's House and then kind of peter off. Mm, uh, so okay. this is the first time, like, and what we're talking about today is probably why I keep on petering off, because it's not continuing the, you know, uh, the core story. It's it's a bunch of one-issue short stories and it can be easy to lose momentum in a place like that. Yeah. Um, but that's also why I've been, uh, they're releasing these deluxe editions. I got this when it first came out. Um, the next one isn't even out until I think the fall, but that's also kind of what part of the reason I wanted to get the physical copies and these deluxe editions are perfect for me. They're not as massive as the omnibuses. Um, they're not as expensive as the absolutes. Um, and they're not just, you know, flimsy, paperbacks that um you know by the time you start to get to the end of collecting them they change the trade dress and then you're like damn it dc yeah <laughs> yeah there's nothing worse than a mismatched set of trades yeah <laughs> seriously the worst thing that can happen to a person yeah i think they've they've changed the trade dress on sandman three times since i started buying it interesting like years ago i mean it's like 10 years but still you think they could stick with it come on yeah this is a series that I have had in many different formats. I've had the trade paperbacks. I have the first edition hardcovers. 
I once had a, a complete run of the single individual issues, and I have the absolute editions. So I no longer have the single issues or the trade paperbacks, but I've got a whole lot of Sandman. <laughs> yeah, nice. I have it all digitally. I had most of the trades, and then I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, but I, I, um, I probably have. But I, I had most of the trades, and then I was going to move to Maine, and I had somebody that I worked with that really loved Sandman. I said, if you buy the last two trades so I can read them, I'll give you the first, like, what is it, like 15 or however many. Um, so I gave her a lot, and all she had to do is buy the last two so I could read them. And then, um, yeah, so it was a good deal for her, but it allowed me to finish reading it. and allowed me to get rid of a bunch of stuff before moving. I've bought the floppies off and on, but, like, when I come across them in dollar bins, and then I'm always like, I'm never going to finish collecting these, and then I'll pass them on to somebody else, so... That's kind of where I've been. So I, I've had the digital copies. Um, I actually bought the first Omnibus once. And I was like, this is untenable to read. So <laughs> I um, I actually sold the Omnibus to get the money to buy the d- digital copies of the entire series when they were having a sell. So that's how I ended up with that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get, the, get it in physical form again because I definitely have found that some things are better to read on printed page ra- rather than digitally. And I think that... Um, artwork from this era really looks a lot better printed than it does digitally there's just something about it like older comics yeah they definitely like have a benefit to reading on like you know how they were originally printed but they're not bad digitally newer comics you know look just as good digitally pretty much because uh, they're made digitally you know most of the time now yeah um, but th- this era i feel like really benefits from being able to hold it in your hand and look at the artwork on page yeah, I really enjoy reading a physical book of these. Yeah. So let's jump into the first issue. Calliope. Calliope. So in this issue, a dirtbag writer keeps a muse, Calliope, one of the ancient Greek nine muses, as a prisoner who provides him with inspiration to became, become a world-renowned writer and director and playwright and all sorts of things very successful in his creative endeavors until finally dream comes and rescues calliope sending this dickhole writer into insanity this is increasingly uncomfortable to read now for me because this is something that probably requires a trigger warning for some people and because like there's a lot of sexual violence and rape in this book and it's like very very uncomfortable to read and it portrays it in a way that doesn't glorify it in any way it really just makes it feel as horrible as it is one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about it, too, is so Calliope is a muse. Like, she comes from, like, mythology, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in mythology, there's tons of instances of stuff that, you know, rape and stuff that we would find detestable. But it's just part of the mythology. And you just kind of take it for granted, right? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but like, you know, Zeus rapes this woman and has children and it's just accepted. Like, it's just like, oh, he goes, decides to go and have sex with somebody 
Doesn't matter if they wanted to or not, you know, it's just kind of, that's what Mm -hmm. it is. This makes it pretty grotesque, doesn't it? Like it really really makes you think about those, um, those things that we take as like, oh, well, that's just Greek mythology or that's just, I mean, and it, it is just that, like it kind of is what it is. We can't really go back to the writer of Greek mythology and be like, uh, you should be more, you know, conscious about what you're writing. But it, mm-hmm. um, like it, it, to me, this really goes to illustrate how we become comfortable with certain things. And then when it's really drawn out to us in a way that we can't ignore what it really means, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. So that was, I think, the first thing that I thought about this reading it. It was just, it, it's bizarre how the character of this story, Richard Maddock, dehumanizes this muse to the point where he feels like well it's not a real person so it's okay that i do this Mm. it's very uh i I don't know maybe representative of the dehumanization that takes place in other people's heads that are grotesque monsters like this one thing i'm curious about is what are your takeaways from this story like what what do you why do you think this was included right in in this sandman story that's one thing i always ask is why why is this story here what is it trying to say uh within this larger work it kind of amazes me at the end i guess that uh calliope when she's freed from this is just like oh thanks cool i'm free now uh it's like she's accustomed to this which i wonder how much of that is you just like you have to live with your reality and you become accustomed to it because you have to keep surviving and how much of it is, you know, like I had just said about like kind of the, the mythology that she is based out of that was more like things were, you know? So maybe it wasn't as, as jarring to, um, you know, to her sensibilities, but to me, like the, aside from just the, the social takeaway of this, but like the, the takeaway of this, as far as the context of the story is that, is that uh, Morpheus is growing as a compassionate character, somebody that can think outside of just either just the rules or just outside of himself. Because that, especially, you know, we look at like kind of the, how he refers to things before the, the beginning of this story where he's captured. Right away we see growth where he's kind of realizing how, you know, the way he's treated others over time probably could have been done differently and he he didn't think past just this like this one thing either just this is how things are so that's how it is or you crossed me and i gave you the chance not to but you did so this is your consequences and he starts and we see it as we get past these stories too that he starts to to see the error in his ways and that um you know people don't act or react based on just one dynamic and um, only thinking of the one dynamic that he sees things from is, is faulty. It's making him lesser because he can't be strong enough to be bigger than that. And I think this is uh, just another story that kind of illustrates that where Calliope did not want to ask him for help because they had a past and he ends up hearing about her situation. She, she refuses to ask for his help when she's approached by the three fates or when she calls to the three fates, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, um, you know, when he gets the, when he sees what's going on, just like he realizes it's wrong. So he interjects. And I think part of it is still that he has that, uh, nature to defend those things that are, uh, that are, are magical or that are, you know, from another realm, things that deserve respect that, uh, that stupid humans don't get, you know? 
It's like he has that desire to step in whenever he sees those kind of wrongs in the first place. But I also think that it takes him putting aside his feelings, which is growth on his part. Yeah, that's one thing I notice a lot is you seven within the the story 70 or 80 years before he probably wouldn't have come to free her he probably would have said well you got captured fair and square by the old rules and them's the breaks and so sucks to be you because he's just very stubborn about his rules and he doesn't see the real impact on people that sometimes these rules have and he seems so rigid in his thinking about having to follow these rules and the way that he thinks things should be that he will do that even when it's hurtful to other people and when the results of following those those rules are disproportionately strong in how they end up hurting people and i think that that is really i think that's one of the big themes in this book is his growth in seeing that though you know there's you you said something interesting that I think is going to come up uh, later in one of the later stories that I want to talk about, about playing into people's pasts and what people think of their past and stuff. I thought that there was one really interesting thing in here. And just this is just like a little nugget of language. But I think that little nuggets of language are never really coincidental with Neil Gaiman. He seems like somebody who's really thoughtful. It's when Calliope is talking to those, the three mother muses who, these are actually like the three ancient muses of mythology that predate the nine muses of Greek mythology. These go back to like, I don't even know what, I looked it up. It was like early Macedonian mythology or something like that where these the three muse mothers come from and she's saying like i want help from anyone but by him and this the kind of middle-aged of these ones says i'm sorry my little one your prayers were wasted there's nothing we can do for you and nothing you can do but hope and what that takes me back to is when sandman when he went to hell to retrieve his helmet and he was playing the game with that demon and he ended it with with being hope and how he talked and the, the the reason he was able to leave hell is he said listen if nobody here has any hope then hell has no power and so me representing hope is really the only thing that allows you to have any power so i i, I really noticed that tie thematically of kind of linking Sandman to this idea of hope, to to linking Dream to this idea of hope, which is weird because he doesn't seem like a very hopeful character in the way that he acts. So I, I do think that that's kind of interesting how hope ties into who he is, and maybe he becomes a little more hopeful throughout this series. Yeah. They also, that same panel, they, they mentioned that uh, at the time of the, this point in the story, he is still imprisoned as well. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, so that's it a overlaps good point. Yeah. That, yeah, so he wasn't even free to try to help her, uh, and this is where she is willing to ask for even his help um, because she didn't want to before. But yeah, that's a very good call out with that, and um, I think that's one of the things that he grasps more and more is that you know dreaming is what gives people hope, and there's more to you know the his role than just following the rules. But yeah, this this writer, it's 
it's just, you know, it's such a representation of how uh, society, you can't take what you've got and be thankful for it. And you just got to keep taking more and more. And he gets to the point where he's he's crossing another power. You know, he, he has this one powerful being that is under his control, Calliope. Mm-hmm. And he crosses paths with Dream and, you know, has the gall to be like, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to free her. He gives him the Dream, you know, gives him the chance to. And if he would have said, you know what? You're right. I I've been doing the wrong thing. Let, let me free her. He would have been able to. He, you know, he would have lost his muse and wouldn't have been able to keep on producing. But he would have been able to continue his life. And because he refuses to, Dream still has to follow the rules of you have to free her. Like you know, Dream can't force him to. He has to free her. But it says, okay, well, if you're not going to, if what you want is ideas, here you go. And he opens the floodgate of those ideas, which is what drives him crazy. So he still has to follow the rules, but he has to plant that seed of you need to free her. And, oh, you won't? Well, here you go. This is what you get for messing with somebody that's, uh, you know, massively more powerful than you that, you know, you can't even fathom. That reminded me a lot of what happened to Burgess at the Mm -hmm. end of issue one when he gave him too much waking, like continual waking from nightmares. Yeah. It was really similar in this, okay, you want to wake up from your nightmare? Well, you'll do that forever. And you want ideas? Well, you will have them forever. And it's kind of this death by your own medicine yeah. kind of thing that Dream seems to do from time to time. It's one of his go-tos. Yeah, it's like the movie Seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So when when this guy, Richard Maddox, starts listing out all these ideas for stories... Is there any that stood out to you of like, wow, that actually would be a really cool story? Because the one that stood out to me where I was like, man, I want to read that story was the man who inherits the library card to Alexandria. That would be a pretty cool story. None of them really struck me in a very big way. I mean, they go from like ideas that are too big to ideas that are kind of very little. A man who falls in love with a paper doll. The sun setting over the Parthenon. Shark's teeth soup. You know, I mean, like, it's kind of like you could say anything and say it's an idea, and then some of them sound kind of, um, kind of bigger. Mm-hmm. Two old women taking a weasel on a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right. Uh, you want to move on to the next one? Yeah. This is a dream of a thousand cats. And in this one, a small, adorable kitty sneaks out of the house to hear an old cat tell a tale of when cats ruled the world and how if cats can only dream it, it will be that way once again. This story is weird because it's about cats, which I like, but it's kind of saying that people are terrible to cats. It's a very, like, anti cats as pets story in a lot of ways (laughs) which is is very odd to me because it kind of i look over at my cat and i'm like oh sorry charlie (laughs) like (laughs) for keeping you prisoner in our house and feeding you and giving you affection (laughs) it's just yeah i mean it's basically the question of free will versus you know lack of free will you know a a cat that's a house pet like i have a cat if we threw our cat outside like all right you're free well, she, she would just be dead pretty soon, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. She wouldn't survive. Um, it's, it's you know, playing with the idea of animals having the same level of consciousness of us and desiring free will. You know, there's always the jokes with cats about how 
Um, you know, they, they really are controlling us. Like they don't want our affection. We want their affection. So they kind of have us, you know, like the, all the little memes about, you know, we, we pick up their poop. So who's really the one in charge here, you know, stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's playing with that where it's like cats have this pet life and, uh, you know, like all pets, pets are treated. I mean, aside from if you're a bad pet owner, pets are treated, uh, you know, better than the mean you know like if you had uh, aside from having like a baby or something if you had somebody living in your house and you had to clean up their poop and feed them you'd probably not want them living with you anymore right yeah <laughs> uh-huh. so cats don't have to carry their weight dogs don't have to carry their weight you know whereas like if you look at uh, other animals like if you have um a farm and you use a horse for purposeful reasons like that horse has a job to do and if it can't do that job it's not just a pet Mm-hmm. And then other, you know, other animals are bred for for meat, or you know, there's lots of different stuff like that. But so, you know, we know cats have it well as long as you're a good pet owner that actually tries to take care of your animals. So this story to me is just like a fun story of you know what if uh, you know other conscious beings you know really had that same level of consciousness as humans. And cats have a lot of like mythology behind them too. So there's you know a lot to you know draw from with that. But I, I just, I, it's just a fun story. I mean, you go back to when cats were big and people were little and, you know, cats played with people like they would mice, basically. And Yeah. It's a very fairy tale story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love this story. It just, when I read it, I was a little like, oh, it, the, the message of it seems to be a little weird. But I do really enjoy it. And I enjoy how much of like a fairy tale for cats this seems to be. And it's very much this fairy tale of this old cat and her story to go find the dream king and to hear this secret truth about the world. Which, I kind of wonder if Dream was telling the truth to this cat. I don't know. It kind of sounds like BS. Like, if enough people can dream something, the world will change. Mm, This seems a little like... uh, wishful thinking well i mean i guess it is literally wishful thinking yeah yeah i think that's where the story's kind of outside of reality but we're reading a comic that's outside of reality so it's easy to continually question like where this fits in you know is this mm-hmm. not, is this is this really real in this this comic world but then also dream isn't burdened with um with being truthful yes either you know so yeah. i mean it, that's not that's not Morpheus's function. So you know how does that play into it? Again, and then this is kind of interesting. I just drew this connection: is Morpheus giving this cat hope? Yeah. Of here's here's a, a hopeful dream that I can give to this cat. To yeah, well, to give it hope, and it's trying to spread this hope around, and that's kind of a an interesting idea. Another connection that I didn't even realize was there as a connection. Yeah. Though I I did start to think this time also that if this was true, if you could get a thousand people to dream something, it would change the world to be that. If that was true and people ever figured this out, it would be weaponized. Like, (laughs) you know, this would be something where you would have these like dream brigades going to dream things into and out of existence all the time. It would be nuts. It'd be like weaponized dreaming. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is, though, dreaming, you can't control it. You can't decide what you're going to dream and dream it. Uh, even if you try to do things to have some influence on how you dream, that doesn't mean that it will. Uh, so I think that that's where, you know, there's a little bit more power in what this is saying is for enough people to dream something to make it happen, it has to be a lot more deep-seated than just a desire or, you know, a will to take advantage of others or to, you know, to change things kind of on a on on a dime to what you want it to be. Um, you know, think about a lot of the bigger changes that have happened in the world, and it does take lots of people dreaming for that change to happen and having hope that it can. And having hope while it continues to be hard, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of the times seem completely hopeless. And, you know, there's lots of times in our society where changes come when everything seemed hopeless. And it takes enough people to have that, to have that dream that things can be different, things can be better. And, Mm. you know, so, I mean, there's some definitely some allegory there that's that's true. It's like you have to have the hope that things can change. And every, you know, there has to be enough people that continue to dream of that you know new reality that it can become a reality yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about it that for hadn't thought about it like that before in terms of it being a literal way thing that could happen but more of a metaphor for if you get enough people to have a dream that's how you get the world to change and that's more like in the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream way of a dream. And you get enough people to dream in that way, you can start to hopefully get the world to change. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I like that way of thinking about it. I think if there's any meaning to get out of that issue, that's that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, Aside from that, it's a a fun story. It's cute. I mean, at the end, you have the little little kitty dreaming and... You know, they're like, oh, look how cute it is dreaming. And, you know, the cat's dreaming about hunting them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is probably what our cat is doing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Want to move on? Yeah. We're good to move on to another. So th- this next issue, this next issue is a fun one. Midsummer Night's Dream. This is the one. I, I guess I won't say what you texted to me about this issue. <laughs> but i think i felt similarly i always i have always felt like this issue is a bit of a slog so in this issue william shakespeare with his traveling troop is traveling through the countryside and they set up in the middle of the countryside to perform and dream shows up with the host of all the people from the land of fairy to watch a performance of a midsummer night's dream which includes characters that are based on these people from the realm of fairy and that's essentially all the story is is this this interspersement of these fairy characters watching the performance of this kind of literal fairy tale written by shakespeare i think i would like this more if i was more familiar with this play Mm -hmm. i think i've seen this performed once when i was pretty young probably almost 30 years ago and i don't remember anything about it just pretty much nothing about this and so shakespeare is dense to read you know and i remember this play making a whole lot more sense when it was actually performed than just reading it but I feel like it was very dense to read it in this form. And I guess I I didn't have 
the patience that I needed to really extract all the juice out of this issue that is there. Yeah, I can see this. I, I'm not a big fan of Shakespeare. I've read plenty of Shakespeare, and I just like have never cared a lot for Shakespeare. Um, I I liked Marlowe better when I was doing literature and you know cross paths with both of them. Yeah, I think like if you're very familiar with Midsummer's Night Dream, this is probably a lot of fun in the way that uh, when a punk band covers a pop song that you you know are really familiar with, you're like, well, this is just really fun to listen to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's like an homage to it, but then bringing into this world of the Sandman. The best thing about this issue to me is the end with uh, uh, Puck. Puck, yeah, like doing the little outro there and having that air of menace. Um, there are a few other airs of menace in this story where some of the, the invited guests are like, oh, we must be here to eat them. And, you know, somebody's like, no, no, I think we're supposed to watch them. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, so I like that there's that little hint of, of menace that is kind of underlying in all things uh, in the Sandman comics. But yeah, like, to me, this issue was, I I like what it's doing. I like the, the idea of what it's doing better than actually reading it. You know, I, I love that, you know, he inspired Shakespeare and that he made a deal with Shakespeare to write him two specific things. Um, and that he's, you know, literally bringing you know, what the Shakespeare play is based on bringing those, uh, beings to come and watch it. Like it's, it's, it's a fun concept, but for me, it's just like the, the concept is, is the best part of it. And the rest of it is just kind of tedious to read through. Yeah. I think I feel similarly in that I appreciate the merits of this much more than I just enjoy actually reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I I feel like man, that's a very accomplished issue to weave these two stories together and weave the real Shakespeare story with his fictional fairy tale story really seamlessly. But it is again, it's just kind of a slog for me to get through. I do think that there's some interesting nuggets in here though because I do think that this issue also gets to some of the core themes of Sandman about like the importance of stories. Cause that's one thing I think that keeps coming up in Sandman is this idea of stories are important and here's different ways that stories are important. And I thought that this was interesting here when I forget who says it, but it, it's, it's one of the fairy characters is talking about the play and saying, well, it's true even though it didn't happen. And I thought that that was a really cool statement that really puts this story in perspective and all of Sandman in perspective in that there's truth to it, even though it actually didn't necessarily happen. Yeah, I think that's kind of the difference between truth and facts. And it's kind of calling that out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Facts are facts. And uh, but there can be truths and things that are not just facts. You know, that are, are based on more than that. You know, people can take facts and manipulate them to say, to make points that are false. Mm-hmm. Um, so the truth is something that's beyond that. And, you know, the play is representing a, a truth of the, the characters and, and, uh, and everything that isn't just the things that factually happened. I like that part of this book. It, it, this story just has these little nuggets like that to, in, throughout that really kind of, get to the heart of what Sandman is all about for me. So one question that I have about this 
is that it seems to be saying that the price that Shakespeare had to pay was his son for this deal he made with Morpheus to become a great playwright. And it, it really heavily alludes that that's why their son died. And also that some, somehow Lady Titania takes a liking to Shakespeare's son. So is it some kind of thing like he was caused to be seen as dying in the world and taken to the land of fairy by Titania? And that's the price that Shakespeare had to pay was his son for this? I feel like there's hints of something like that going on here, but I can't remember enough about any future reveals like that or anything else that would kind of point to that being the case. I also wonder without knowing enough depth about Shakespeare and like historically Shakespeare, um, if there's more to it than that, that is just based on that. So like if Neil Gaiman loves Shakespeare, so he's, you know, dropping these Easter eggs in here that are based on that. Uh, but that last panel says that, uh, you know, Hamnet Shakespeare died in 1596, aged 11. Robin Goodfellow's present whereabouts are unknown. So different things could be, could be like hinted there. You know, are they hinting that Robin Goodfellow, uh, abducted or killed Shakespeare's son? And it says he died, not that he disappeared. Yeah. Mm hmm. Like you said, they, they referenced, uh, you know, uh, Titania's fondness for him. I don't think that this was the price that he had to pay because the price that he had to pay for all of the ideas was to write two specific plays for Morpheus. And this is one of them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think it's saying that his son's life was the price that he paid, but I want like, basically I wonder if that is relating more to actual history of Shakespeare. Uh, they also referenced in it that, um, I, I think Hamnet, his son said, you know, I'll die and then he'll just write a play about it. And, you know, his name's Hamnet. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think they're, they're uh, referring to historical things or, you know, things that are known about Shakespeare and just kind of tying it in kind of like Easter eggs for Shakespeare fans. And that's where, you know, those things could uh, easily go over our heads, too, with us being a little more apathetic about Shakespeare. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly, about that Robin Goodfellow ha- having his whereabouts unknown he will come back and play into Sandman again in the Kindly Ones arc. Okay, so there you go. So that's probably why that thread was dropped then. Yeah, and who knows if Neil Gaiman intended for that to be because, you know, this is what almost 50 issues after this that the Kindly Ones happens, like 40 to 50 issues yeah. later when he comes back. But maybe it's one of those things where he dropped this nugget thinking, well, I'll get back to it someday. Yeah, you leave threads, that way you can then weave them in later, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. I kind of get that sense uh, from from this. Or, I mean, maybe he did have the idea that he would come back. And Yeah, it could be just vague ideas. I mean, we read the, the what, 50 issues, or how many issues was it of Exo Manowar that Robert Venditti did? Yeah, 50. 50, yeah. So we read those 50 issues, and we know that he didn't even get to all of his loose threads that he left to tie back in later, but over those issues, we saw him do that and tie back into threads that were dropped way earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so a, a good writer with, um, you know, with a, a big story to tell has a much bigger plan than just what's right in front of them. Uh, often. I think that was, you know, Robert Venditti's case with that. 
We know Matt Kent had that with Rye, where he didn't get to you know actualize very much even of what he had in mind. And Sandman, I mean, this went on for so long. You don't have something run this long and be this good if you don't have you know at least some kind of far sight uh, to to what you're going to do with the story. Yeah. One other cool thing I think in this story is the Long Man of Wilmington, which is this carving of the man on the hillside. And that's a real place in England. And that's a, a real attraction where there's this hillside where that man, and it's drawn pretty much exactly correctly in this book, is like carved in to the side of the hillside. So the idea of it being a portal between this land and fairy is pretty cool (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i just looked it up and the pictures of it it's like it looks exactly (laughs) as it's drawn in this book it's pretty cool yeah that's really cool yeah yeah i like the those sorts of details neil gaiman's good at that yeah yeah definitely all right that's all i have to say about this one yeah yeah okay yeah (laughs) all right the last issue in this one is facade and in this one element girl or urania blackwell just wants to be able to die she's stuck up in her home she gets a call from an old friend and goes to meet her for lunch and it goes terribly and it's not until she has a conversation with death that she's able to finally get what she wants yeah i wasn't a big fan of this issue I can't tell if it is a happy or a sad story. And I think it's a little of both at the same time. Because this Rainy character is like very sad. And her situation is very sad. It's her getting to finally die at the end seems like a happy moment. But then when you think about it, that's it's such a tragedy where that's the only happiness that can exist for her. Yeah. I don't know. So to me, this story is like, that's, that's like kind of the obvious thing in this is that she's miserable and wants to die. She can't kill herself in the end. She gets to die. But I think that that's the, the obvious thing that's kind of overlaid upon the kind of metaphor that this story tells, which is probably something more along the lines of uh, either one of two things pop into my head is either one thinking you know what you want and then once it's too late realizing that it's not what you wanted and having to live with the consequences and how hard it is to uh to see reality and be able to move on from those things the other thing is blindly trusting others which is what she says she did in this she just she did what she was told to do she went where she was told to go and um and it cost her and so, I mean, this, you know, the whole story is her being just paralyzed by her own life, basically. You know, even when she gets the courage to go out and, and, and meet somebody that calls her, it obviously goes horribly, but the whole time she's still paralyzed by her situation. You know, she's so terrified that this is going to happen. In reality, with her powers, she's powerful. She doesn't have to care what people think. She can't be hurt. So, you know, what is all this fear from? The fear is, you know, coming from rejection. You know, she's worried that, that nobody's going to want her. Nobody's going to be there for her. Uh, and she can't move past that. And yeah. even when, you know, like death is there, she's like, oh, good. You're going to kill me. And she's like, no, that's not how this works. Like, that's all she wants is for somebody else to fix it for her. And death has to tell her 
look, this is literally right in front of you every single day how to address this. And she, even when she tells her, she has to then spell it out for her because she's so oblivious to seeing past her facade. And that's what this whole thing is about is being able to let go of your facade and kind of, kind of be real. Death calls that out. So it's not just about her, you know, oh no, poor girl, this bad thing happens to her and the only freedom is death. That's not what this is about at all. This is about, we all create these facades for ourselves and then we get to where we can't uh, remove them. We can't move past them. And we try to make that who we are, and it's not. The ability to fix the situation or move on from it's right in front of us. Like in this case, she got this power from the sun god. The sun's there every day. She just has to talk to the sun god in the sun. She doesn't have to go back to Egypt. So, that, you know, that's all just the metaphor for she's making these facades. Like, you know, she says in this, like, she, she makes this fake face but then she can never get rid of it because it's a piece of her. But if it's a fake face in the first place, it's like, yeah, I mean, it literally was made from her body. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's not her face. So she's deciding that all these fake things that she makes to represent herself are what's real. Um, and when did this when did this story come out? What, what years are we in right here? Is this like early 90s, late 80s? This is probably late 80s. Because I started reading Sandman. This looks like beginning of the 90s. This copyright, the earliest copyright is 90. So 90, 91, 92. Uh, and then 97, 98, 99 is the later stuff that we talked about off, off air beforehand. But yeah, yeah, probably 90. Because I think I started reading Sandman in the 40s in 92. So that would put this yeah. right around 1990. Yeah, so if this was in 90, I mean, what are the 80s known for? The 80s are known for excess. And the 80s are known for like a lot of phony people, right? Yeah. Uh, like that's the, it's all like, like the cliche yuppie, of get ahead commercialism. Yeah. Yeah. And it, every, everybody was fake in the eighties. And, um, you know, you have Neil Gaiman who starts this Sandman story in the eighties, late eighties. And he obviously isn't going with the grain of things. So, you know, this is a story going against the grain of what's the eighties. And to, you know, to me, like this is just him calling out, what people have been doing, what he sees all around him and, you know, calling out those facades that people make. And he probably sees people that make these facades. And like, in this case, it's easy. You see, you know, like you said, the yuppies or whatever, you're like, Oh, look at these jerks. You know, they deserve whatever, who cares? But in real life, we know people who are really struggling with these things, even if they're not trying to be those, you know, those yuppie people who like their life is all about being fake. As much as we're not trying to get caught up in the flow of society, we all do to some extent, and it takes real work to fight against it. When you see people struggling with these things, like you can look at the fake people out in the world and just think it's stupid and they, they deserve what they get coming to them. But when you see the real people around you and you understand better the context of everything that's going on uh, you know, in their lives and what they're struggling against and all those things, then it's a, it's a very different thing and you have a lot more sympathy or empathy, better yet, for for those people and you you want to see them get past these barriers that they make for themselves mm-hmm. um you know like right now one thing that we do in our society is we get caught up in in social media culture and social media is more real than the real world to a lot of people very easily but when we take a step back and look like i mean we're all in different things and i know that you and i you know engage more with twitter and i think that both of us do a better job of we've learned to step back managing and, that cesspool yeah like yeah. we know we know it's just a, a pile of shit that's there and <laughs> yeah. 
there's positive in there, but like the way you get the positive without getting dragged by it down by the negative is by just the negative isn't worth keeping around. You don't owe anybody a conversation. You don't owe anybody an explanation. You don't owe anybody an argument. When you, I was tweeting with somebody before we did this, uh, that was complaining about getting spoilers for the new episode of, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. And I said the same thing I've been saying for months and months to people. You got to block everybody who's a jerk on Twitter. Because you know what? If they're a jerk, they're, those are the people that spoil things. Because they're self-absorbed. Yeah, and that's what they're doing yeah. on Twitter, you know? And the other side of it is just understand that just spend a day off Twitter until you watch the show. It's, yeah. If you know it's a popular show, I haven't gone on Twitter today. So I haven't been spoiled about the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier yet. Because I've just... Well, luckily, I've been really busy with work, and I haven't had time to to look at Twitter at all or anything like that. So, I just I didn't see anything, and it, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think we're <laughs> that's a whole different <laughs> sidetrack conversation that doesn't have too much to do with this story. Well, but that that's our facade nowadays. That's an example mm, of our facade nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we have social media influencers. You know, some people have made careers out of that, but there are a lot of people out there doing influencing that are just trying to do anything to get attention. And a lot of them, their goal to influence you isn't to help you. It's to get you to click on their stuff and watch it so they make money off of you. And that's another example of the facades we get in today. Well, this is what's important. This is what matters. And this is what we start to build ourselves around. And we all see people hurt themselves or live in negative places for no reason or, uh, you know, sometimes it's for reasons that are just more complicated. So I, I yeah. think that that's what the story is. It's going back to it's 1990, you know, Neil Gaiman looking at what is going on around him with, you know, the world in general, maybe with people he knows specifically, maybe who knows. But um, that's what that story is about is um, not letting these facades that we know aren't really who we are be who we are to the point where it destroys us. So I... I looked at it a little bit differently, and it's the idea that I think Death puts her fingers on it when she she comes in and starts talking to Rainey. She says that, oh, you all tend to hold on to your old identities a bit too much. And I think that one of these ideas is a person's sense of what their story is can be very powerful. But also, we have the capability to rewrite our own stories and change our stories in our head of who we are and, and what our life is about. And Rainey was unable to do that. She was unable to change her story. But if she had changed her story, maybe her life would have been different. Because, like you said, she she could have just been more comfortable with who she was and how she looked and embraced the power that she had and just went with it and decided that that was okay and probably lived a happy life in the difference between an unhappy life and a terrible life given these or the difference between a happy life and an unhappy life given these circumstances is that story that she tells herself self about what all this means so i think that it was a powerful message about being able to decide for yourself what your story is and i also think that that ties into the larger narrative of sandman because i think that largely the story in the end dream is undone by being able to change the story of his life about who he is 
for better or worse. I think that he's presented with several very prominent figures within his his kind of peers who are able to change their stories. And we're going to see one in the next story, which is when Lucifer decides to abandon hell. And that is a Lucifer ultimately changing his story because he has a very, very powerful story written about him as the incarnate of evil and all that is bad in the world. And so for him to decide, you know what, I'm going to rewrite my story and let go of that old story and decide something new is is very powerful. And I, we're going to see it even later when we get to the stuff with destruction. So I think it serves to contrast a little bit of how sometimes it's good to change your story in order to survive and move on when you're exi- when the existing story of who you are and what your life is about is no longer serving as something beneficial. And so I, I think that that is both in this story and also part of the broader story of what Sandman is all about as well. Yeah. And that definitely sets us up for the transition to the next story with what you just mm-hmm. said, you know, what, what's going to happen. And it kind of prepares us mentally for that. Which makes sense because there's definitely some big shifts in uh, you know what we're experiencing as we continue to go through Sandman and Neil Gaiman with how you know high quality of a storyteller he is he's good at you know kind of setting our palettes to be ready for the next thing instead of having that uh you know hard shift that we can get lost in it he wants us to be ready for you know without spelling stuff out to us he wants us to be ready for what's coming in a way that's gonna give us the most out of it. Yeah. So I used to think that these short stories and others like it, like we'll get to some in the, some of the stories that are collected in the fables and reflections trade. And then there's the world's end books, which are all individual short stories. I used to feel like those were kind of like sidetracks that were kind of distractions away from the quote unquote main story of Sandman. But more and more I'm seeing them as more of like the main event as, you know, part of the whole and that the whole really wouldn't be as good if it didn't have these stories, because these stories really flesh out the thematic quality of, of what Sandman is all about. And I think that it does it in a way by kind of taking different views and looks and perspectives on these big themes that he likes to play with, which is kind of the ability to change the importance of stories, the role that stories play in our life and guide our life and can shape us. And if Sandman existed is just like, okay, the first trade and then Doll's House and then jump to Seasons of Mists and then jump to Brief Lives and then jump to The Kindly Ones and then The End. I don't think it would be as good of a story if it left out a lot of these stories that seem kind of like sidetracks on the way to the ultimate destination. I think I just, I appreciate them a lot more now than I did when I first read all these when I was... 20 or so yeah yeah i think you know depending on how you go about reading stuff too like when you were first reading them you were reading it as it came out right 
Uh, well, no, I only read it for like a year as it was coming out. Okay. It was like the, the tail end of my adolescent comic book reading. It was like, as I was realizing that I was growing out of superheroes, I found stuff like Sandman and stuff like that. But then a year after that, I got the, uh, as my buddy Chiclo says, gas and perfume disease and stopped reading comics altogether (laughs) in high school. And didn't come back to it until I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, it was just this really brief window where it was like, I was old enough to have really outgrown the, what I saw as quote unquote, immature superhero stuff, but I still wanted to read comics, but before I had outgrown comics altogether. Yeah. I think, um, I think this is kind of a a good example of the differences between reading stuff issue by issue as it comes out rather than reading it once it's collected I think different stories lend well to different things. And I think Neil Gaiman with this is a good example of where both things can be beneficial. Uh, if you get one issue and have to dwell on it, then you get a one issue like, you know, Midsummer's Night Dream or Calliope or, you know, whatever. And you read that one issue and you're not pounding through issues before and pounding through issues after it. And it, it gives it a different experience and you, you know, have to dwell on what you just read longer if you're reading it and then having to wait another month till the next thing comes out. And I think that when we read through things quickly in a case like this, then when we go back and we read the, you know, we know the certain beats of the story that we look forward to. It's the offbeat parts that we're able to appreciate more the second time we're reading through, if we're reading through things quickly, uh, because it is changing up that pace a little bit. And it's the things that we don't remember as thoroughly. Um, so it can surprise us a little bit. And, um, yeah. I still didn't like Midsummer's Night Dream that much though. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> it was, it was fine. Yeah. It was absolutely fine. I just will not be like, Oh, I can't wait to read that one again. I know. <laughs> yeah. W- one of my favorite issues of Sandman, actually, I, I would say my favorite issue of Sandman is one of these one-off stories that comes up later in the series that we'll get to. Nice. So I, I definitely, I find a lot more value in these now yeah. than, than I used to. And I like going through this as we are, that we just spent, you know, this episode on these four issues, because I think this could have easily been the type of thing where it's like, if we had tried to squeeze this in with seasons of mist, just like, oh yeah, yeah, these issues or whatever. And then let's, let's talk about the quote unquote good stuff of seasons of mist. Yeah. But I feel like there's a lot to like in these issues. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting reflecting on the conversation we just had about these four issues and what we really just had a conversation about was theme and, um, you know, some of the, the deeper stuff inlaid in there. And, you know, when we're talking about some of the bigger stories, we're talking about, you know, more, um, you know, action, more, you know, story building and maybe world building, maybe character building, but like, it's definitely like it's interesting that with these like we had to dwell on theme and that's really what was there with it. Mm-hmm. I think this is great because I, I also think that we're going to get more out of those big plot driven stories like Seasons of Mist because we've spent a while kind of simmering in these themes from these issues. Yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's correct. And yeah, I mean, and after talking about them, I, I think I give more value to them than I did reading them. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm a big fan of these issues and others like it within the context of Sandman. 
But I am very much looking forward to Seasons of Mist, which is what we're going to be doing next. So do you want to jump straight into it for the next episode, or do you want to wait a couple weeks before we talk about Seasons of Mist? Yeah, let's take a week off in between, and then we'll get to Seasons okay. of Mist. And I already started reading it. I know that that will uh, be easier to get through because um, it keeps you more engaged than you know individual stories. But um, let's get, give a week uh, to continue to let these four stories stew, and then we'll get on to Seasons of Mist. All right, so next week, back to wrestling punk rock and silly comics as usual yeah (laughs) yeah cool all right all right cool well this has been a fun conversation i feel like i like these issues even more and i like that your interpretation is different than my interpretation of each of these but i feel like the interpretations are complementary at the same time like you, you, you know your your takeaway wasn't from facade wasn't superheroes are lame and they should suck it up and get over it, you know, or something, you know, really totally counter to, to my thoughts is that, you know? Um, so yeah, I really, I dig it. I'm looking forward to seasons of mists. I'm, I'm looking forward more to seasons of mists now than I think I ever had, because I feel like I have a better sense of what I'm looking for in Sandman. Yeah. So I think I'll pick up more of how the thematic stuff comes through within this mythology plot building stuff that occurs in the next story arc. Yeah. And for me, we're already into the territory where I've only read this stuff once and it's been over a decade. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> awesome. This is going to be good. Yeah. Well, I think that this is the place to wrap this up. You already know who we are and where to find us on Twitter because we did that in our award-winning beginning of this episode. They might not have caught it, though, because we were so smooth. They probably thought we were just having conversations. Probably. But, <laughs> hey, that's the glory thing about podcasts. You can delete it and download it again to increase our numbers and listen again. <laughs> so please do that. <laughs> we will appreciate it. You can find more wherever you found this one. And so if you know where this one is, you know where the rest are. All right. Until next time, see you later, Paul. Later.